Hello, beautiful people. My guest today is Doug Cartwright. And Doug is an author who is also a former door-to-door salesman. And in this conversation, we went deep. So here's what happened. I saw his book title, Holy Shit, We're Alive. And I instantly felt a sense of connection that, oh, wow, this is someone I'd like to have on the podcast. I invited him on. I read his book. I then had this incredible conversation with Doug. And we spoke about a wide array of topics. We talked about synchronicities, what Doug thinks those synchronicities actually mean. We talked about getting back into alignment when things are, you're more in in a rut. We talked about plant medicines and how that can help someone along their journey. We talked about the importance of radical self-acceptance. And we talked about June 10th. You'll hear about it all. I'm really excited for you to dive into this conversation. And if you have any thoughts about this episode, let me know on Twitter at Hey Danny Miranda. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. But until then, this is my episode with Doug Cartwright. Interesting people, thought provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. Doug Cartwright, it is an absolute honor for you to be here. I'm so grateful you've joined me because I've been through your work, I've been through your writing, I've been through your ideas and had you in my mind so often listening to podcasts nonstop. And I'm just excited that the universe brought us together in this moment. Thank you for being here. Danny, thank you for inviting me on. I'm really happy to be here too. So why don't we start with June 10th? Mm. What is June 10th all about? Man, June 10th was the day that my life changed forever. You know, you always hear about like people saying, oh, your life can change in a moment. You're like, oh yeah, whatever. That doesn't really make sense. And then June 10th, 2017 happened to me and my entire constructs of reality got blown out. My entire life has been completely different and nothing has ever been the same since that experience. That's quite a cliffhanger. How it's, did... it's, it's a cliffhanger. Yeah. But, but you also had a cliffhanger yourself for June 10th. You were wondering for a long time, what is June 10th all about? Right? Yeah. Yeah, so leading up to it, so we'll, and we'll get into the details of what happened, but I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. I grew up Mormon, um, and the culture I grew up in was, you know, I lived in a neighborhood where everyone was white, everyone was Republican, and everyone was Mormon. And so I kind of lived in this rigid uh, structure of being raised, and in the Mormon faith, there's this coming-of-age ritual. When you turn 18 is you get called to go on a service mission. And for two years, you give up school, you give up girls, you give up work, and you just proselyte um, for the Mormon faith. And it's like this really spiritual experience. You kind of, it's like where you grow up. And I got my mission call to Auckland, New Zealand, um, which is incredible. I love the people of New Zealand. Um, And on my mission, I had this reoccurring dream. And I felt like I was in a very spiritual state. And in this dream, it was, I remember looking through this, and I always close my eyes when I talk about it because I can still see the visual but I'm looking through like this sliding glass door and 
um, I remember seeing like the kitchen counter and on the kitchen counter was this white birthday cake. And I kept thinking like, oh my gosh, whose birthday is it? What are we celebrating? Like in my dream, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is really, really exciting. And I remember thinking, I want to read the name of who's like happy birthday, Steve or happy birthday, Mike. I was thinking there was like a name on the cake, like whose birthday is it? And I zoom in over the cake and I look down on this white birthday cake and in red frosting, just really, really big. It says June 10th. And I remember thinking like, huh, that's weird. And then I remember waking up and on your service mission, you have a companion, like someone you do the work with. And I remember waking up the next morning being like, you know, hey, I had this really weird dream about this date of June 10th. And this is in 2008, by the way, this is, this is probably May, 2008. And it's like June 10th, June 10th. And so I'm kind of like a fun, easy, lighthearted guy. And so was my companion. And so we kind of like played it out and made it like this really big, mysterious deal. And we were, it was a big play. It was a big play on words and we were joking and we're like, oh my gosh, June 10th, something really big is going to happen. And so we thought as missionaries, it's like, maybe we'll meet a family that wants to get baptized in the Mormon church or like maybe Jesus will come back on June 10th. And so we made it out to be like this really big deal. And we would joke about it all the time. So eventually on my mission in 2008, June 10th comes. It was like the night before we were like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen tomorrow? You know, June 10th comes on in 2008, nothing happens. Like, this is like a total normal day, nothing crazy. And so it was kind of like, we kind of just forgot about it. Um, and after my mission, my um, companion wrote me a letter because, you know, you, you work together with your companion for like six to nine months. And it was like all of our fun memories. And he's making all these bullet points. And one of the bullet points was like, June 10th, don't forget this day, you know, big, this kind of this big deal. And I kind of just forgot about it, you know? And then like, I think the year after like 2009, like I text him, Hey, it's June 10th, you know, haha, funny thing, you know? And then I kind of just forgot about it until 2017. So what happened in 2017 and we'll get right into it, but at this point in my life in 2017, so I grew up Mormon, I had left the Mormon faith. Um, I was really successful in my early twenties in my sales job. I'd made a ton of money, but I was really at like this crux of my life of like, I didn't feel fulfilled. I knew money wasn't going to be the answer. And I've termed this uh, version of myself in my book is the success void. So Danny, if I gave you a resume at my life at this point, you would read this paper of my resume of Doug's life at this point, And you would read that and you would believe that I was successful. I had money, I had a car, I had a job, I was dating pretty girls, I was like in pretty good shape, like I looked successful. You'd be like, oh wow, Doug's doing great. But I had like this deep existential void, like felt super worthless, didn't feel connected to anything, didn't have purpose, I was a lost soul and wasn't connected to any form of spirituality at all. I was literally like a douchey sales bro, like that's just the guy I was. I was like a douchey sales bro, like toxic masculine um, and I was really confused. So I started searching, you know, at the end of 2016, 2017, and I kind of dabbled in meditation. I kind of dabbled in yoga. I kind of dabbled in mindfulness. I'm like, Ooh, there's kind of like this weird hippie dippy stuff. Maybe there's something to the hippie dippy stuff. And I was kind of like, wasn't fully in, but kind of playing with it. And then where things really started to take a turn was I found this book called stealing fire. And the premise of Stealing Fire, I don't know, have you read it, Danny? Yeah. So I'm yeah. listening to a podcast of you and you mentioned mm. this book and yeah. I am currently reading this book myself. Amazing. What are, are Amazing. the odds of that? 
Yeah, that's how it works. Is how the universe works. And Stealing Fire talks about how to get into flow state. So flow state is basically whether you're an athlete, a musician, a performer, an artist, whatever, and you just get into the zone and like it comes really easy and you're more just, you're not thinking, you're just reacting and you have really high levels of performance. And so as a, like a sales bro at this time, I'm thinking, cool, I would love to get into flow state so I can sell more and make more money because I thought that was the answer, right? And so I'm reading this book thinking, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to read about peak performance and it gets to a part in the book where they talk about psychedelic compounds and growing up in conservative Mormon white Utah, you're taught that every drug is really, really bad for you. And if you do it one time, it'll kill you and you'll become homeless. So don't ever do drugs. And I'm reading about, they talk about and specifically in this book, they talk about MDMA or which is like basically ecstasy. They talk about psilocybin mushrooms they talk about lsd and they talk about dmt which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca and i'm reading this book and my jaw drops to the floor because trying to be this entrepreneur right at the time i remember there was a quote from steve jobs in that book where he says doing lsd was one of the most profound experiences of my life so in my head i'm thinking here's this world-renowned entrepreneur who literally founded and led this company that changed the way we live as humans. And he's talking about the profound effects of this psychedelic compound. And I'm like, there's something here. There's something here. So per the universe, coincidentally, a couple of weeks later, I'm at this cabin party and I've never been offered anything more, you know, more than marijuana from friends. Um, at an experience. And so I'm at this party. My friend's like, hey, I have some MDMA here if you want to try it. And I'm like, wait, what? I've never been offered this before in my life. I just read this book that talks about it. There's something here. Like, I need to try this. And so I don't know. I mean, obviously, those who have done MDMA can resonate. So I take this MDMA experience, MDMA, and then, you know, 45 minutes an hour later, I feel the effects and it's cool. It's like, I feel really cool. My heart's open. I love the music. I love the lights. I love everyone, you know, kind of just having a normal MDMA experience. Um, I was rolling, you know, like kind of your typical role. I'm like, oh, this is cool. Like this is, this is fun, you know, but I wasn't having like some deep spiritual experience like I had read in the book. And I remember there was a moment in that experience. Where I remember thinking like, okay, this is kind of a slippery slope. Like, tread lightly, like don't get stuck in like this drug world type of thing. And I was a little bit, you know, it's hard hard to say, but I was, there was a moment in that night where I was a little bit disappointed because I had this expectation of like this grand cosmic spiritual awakening. And I really just had like a normal role and that was fun. And then maybe two hours, I'm like, I'm definitely in the experience. And maybe about two hours later, my friend who was kind of leading the party was like, Hey, come into this bedroom. We'll turn off the lights. We have like this laser show thing. You're going to love it. Cause there's tracers. It's just like, I'm like, cool shit. We're doing drugs, whatever I'm in, you know? And we kind of have like this fun experience. And then I think like halfway through someone like came in and turned on the light and kind of killed the vibe of the whole thing. And then everyone kind of like got up and left and went back to the main party area. And I remember laying on the hardwood floor and i'll never forget i had my hands behind my back and i'm just laying on the ground by myself and i remember thinking there's more to this like there's another layer here and so i get up to stand up to leave to go back into the main kitchen area of the party 
and I have this like, oh shit moment. Like I need help. I need help right now. And I start to panic. So I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Get Out. No. Have you seen that movie? No. So there's this part where it's like this guy's, you know, he gets, it's called the sunken place and his like soul almost freezes in eternity. And I felt like I was like falling out of my body and I had frozen and it was horrific. It was like the most terrifying. I thought I had died because I had all of these memories of like when I was a kid that I hadn't thought about forever that were like flashing before my eyes. And I'm like, oh shit, I've died. And I remember thinking like, someone's going to have to call my mom and tell her that I passed away because I took drugs at a party. And like, I'm like, oh my gosh. And I panic. And it was like, it was a really, really, really scary moment for me for about like 15 seconds. And then all of a sudden it was like, and I felt like something had changed dramatically. And there was like this ringing, like this wow, 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 like back here. I don't know how to explain it. And so I open up the door to go into like the, where the main party is and I'll do my best to describe it, but there aren't human words for it. But the best human words I can use was I got through the veil. Like I was through the matrix. I was through whatever this is. I was in another definition dimension of life that was completely different. It was, it was still this dimension, but it was a super high def. I could see everything was incredibly enhanced I could see energy floating through the air. I could see, like, if I had if I had never knew you and you were at that party, I could see you and I could see your energy breathing off of you. And there was different colors and intensity. And I could see light systems up between people. And I could know so much about you. But it wasn't in, like, a judgmental or empathetic way. And I remember going up, like, to the table, this wood table he had in the kitchen. I remember putting my hand on it. And I could see the energy that was still in the wood. And my first thought was, like, wait, this is what happens when you do drugs? How come no one talks about this dimension? Like, is this just, like, a big kept secret that no one talks about? Like, how, how are people not talking about this all the time? This is the most insane, indescribable place I've ever been to in my whole life. Like, it doesn't even make sense. It's a whole other world. And I walk out to the balcony. And it was up in the mountains and it was overlooking this beautiful lake. And I remember seeing, as I'm looking at this lake, the earth breathing. And I'm like, whoa, Mother Earth. Like, Mother Earth is an actual entity. Oh, I get it. I get it. I'm like, oh, and I felt like the connection to the planet for the first time. And then I go back inside and I remember, like, this beam of light socks me on the top of the head and it was the love of the creator or source or god or the divine whatever word that is to you i don't think it's a guy in a beard and a robe and and on a throne but it's like this universal consciousness creation energy that's infinitely more wise than me and i felt the love of the creator and i remember feeling that i didn't have to earn it i remember there was no like checklist did you do the right things okay if so then you get love i remember feeling that i was the most beautiful creation in the entire universe and i remember looking down and being like oh my gosh i am fully beautiful and loved and i'm the most beautiful creation and i remember looking up and thinking oh everyone is the most beautiful loving creation ever and it's not just me and people it's the plants it's the animals it's the water it's the air it's like this is the most beautiful creation ever and we don't have to earn it and we have infinite love forever. 
And then I started to realize as I kind of looked around the party, I'm like, I'm having a completely different experience than everyone else here. Like something different is happening. Like no one else is at this dimension I'm at. And so I go and upstairs to be alone. I'm like, maybe I should go be alone and kind of process some thoughts. And I remember laying on this couch upstairs and I'm not saying this is true. I'm not saying I have the insight. I'm very open to the idea that I had a weird chemical reaction. My brain fired off all this information and I believe it. Sure. It doesn't matter if it's true or not, but the way I saw it was I saw like what happens before we come to earth, why we're on earth and then what happens after we die. And the way I perceived that it was like this infinite loop of soul progression. And keep in mind at this point in my life, I've never done any studies in like Eastern philosophy. And I remember like seeing evolution of reincarnation. And so I thought that like reincarnation was, I'm like, Oh, the hippies think that when you die, like your energy turns into a flower. That's what I thought reincarnation was at this point. And I'm like, Oh wait, my body dies, but my soul continues on and I get an I get multiple human lives. And I remember seeing the progression of my soul not only in like this sounds really weird and I get it, but like it's and not only in a human sense, but in like an infinite space where there's other experiences that aren't human. And I'd never comprehended that in my whole life. And it was like my mind was this big and then that night it just blew open to this grand cosmic explosion. Um, and then all of a sudden I was just sober. And so I go to my buddy who, who actually gave me the pill and I'm like, dude, thank you so much. Like, thank you so much. He's like, yeah, man, glad you're having fun. I'm like, no, like I will never be the same ever again. And I'm like, I'm sober. He's like, no, you're not sober. You took that like four hours ago, you know, last like up to eight. I'm like, no, I was fine. And so I just went home and went to bed. So I wake up the next morning I had a friend take me home. And I call a friend who also had an ex- the experience. I'm like, hey, what did you learn in the spirit world? And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, when you broke through to that other dimension, what did you learn? He's like, what the hell are you talking about? And I'm like, wait, what happened to you last night? He's like, I had a really, really good conversation with my wife and we snuggled and felt the love and listened to good music and vibed all night. He's like, what happened to you? I'm like, dude, I went to another dimension. And so at this point, I'm like, wait, what happened? This is really weird. You know, this is crazy. And so I'm kind of going down the rabbit hole. And so to answer your question about June 10th, during that night, when I'm in that higher dimension, I had a sober friend there, pull out his video camera and start recording me. And he's like, dude, tell me what's going on right now. And you can actually, you can watch the video I posted on my website. If you go to the dailyshifts.com forward slash June 10, you can see the actual video. It's, it's live on my website. So my buddy and I'm talking about like, there's another dimension. Everything's connecting. This is crazy. So anyways, I'm talking to a, a good, dear soul friend of mine named Bea, and I'm telling her about this experience. I'm like, Bea, you are not going to believe this. Like, I have to tell you what happened. So I go to my photos to find this video that my friend took of me, and I pull it on, and I click on the video, and I look at the timestamp on the bottom of the, of the video, and it says June 10th. And I'm like, it was literally like mind blown. I'm like, what the hell? Like that's the date from my mission of the birthday of the awakening and celebration. And because of that moment, I'm like, that's too crazy of a coincidence. There's something more here. And that is kind of the nudge I got to like continue to search 
down the rabbit hole, which led me to a whole of different modalities and different psychedelic medicines and different experiences. And so, yeah, that one experience on June 10th, like this two hour window when I was another dimension completely changed the entire course of my entire life, which really led me to write that, write, write the book as well. Oh my God. <laughs> it's crazy, man. And yeah, it's, it's crazy, crazy in, in the way of, holy smokes, I can't believe I get to witness someone else having that experience. Crazy. Yeah. Not crazy in the way of, of insanity, crazy and like, oh my, mind blown. Like, so, you know, you briefly mentioned in that whole thing about the experience you had with, and I have a, a quote here I want to talk about, which talks about the journey that a human being goes through. And mm. it, and it, this is from your book, Holy Shit, We're Alive. The vision showed me how in the cosmic arena, everything humans have discovered so far is only the tiny, the smallest portion of what math and science can actually do. The entities guiding me told me in no uncertain terms that we have absolutely no clue how anything works. We literally know nothing. They used my three-year-old niece, Alice, coming home and putting her art on the fridge as an analogy. Of course, everyone thinks that's so cute, and we all give her a pat on the head for her efforts. That's what they said about our deepest, most complex astrophysics equations. That was about a different trip further along mm -hmm. the journey. Mm -hmm. But that's how I felt listening to you speak just now. Mm, amazing. Yeah, it was very, like like I said, it, you, you, we grow into this box where we think we know everything. And we really feel the walls and we feel the roof and we feel the bottom. We feel the sides like, wow, I'm really expansive right now. And then the lid comes off and you realize you're one of infinite boxes in this grand arena. And you're like, oh shit, I don't know anything. And you don't know that there's multiple boxes when the, when the, when the ceiling's on top of your box because you feel like you've maxed out. And that's what happened is the lid came off and I peeked my head up over and I'm like, oh my God gosh, there are infinite boxes upon infinite layers, upon infinite dimensions, up, down, left, right, behind me, in front of me, sideways. And once you see that and comprehend that, it, you're never the same. What do you think the synchronicities are? What do you think, you know, you mentioned briefly just now how it's points and signs to keep going along your journey. But mm -hmm. what do you think compels the universe to to create them in the first place how do they occur what is your take from doing so much internal work yeah i think the synchronicity piece is i mean that's a really great question i haven't asked been asked that before so thank you um because it's important to me the synchronicity is really important because it gives me for my experience at least it gives me a sense of surety and peace that something bigger than me is guiding me it's not like this random uh, events that are just kind of falling together. There's so many, I've had so many moments in my life where I'm like, what just happened? Where the dots connect and it merges and it all makes sense. And I'm like, what? And it's so profound and it's so unpredictable that I'm like, there's no way that's just random. And it gives me a sense of, of calm in my soul of like, oh, something bigger than me that's beyond comprehension that I can't possibly understand loves me and is guiding me. And if I can tap into that universal flow and allow it to guide me and allow it to take me, 
it knows better than I do. And it has a better future in store for me than I can prepare for myself as long as I stay in alignment and in integrity of that energy. Okay, so let's get into alignment. Yeah. How yeah. how do you know you are in alignment? Um, I think by the way I feel, right? And so do I feel grounded? Do I feel intuitive? Do I feel does my mental, personal psyche and mental well being feel content? Right? Do I feel at ease? Do I feel the love? Do I feel the slowness and the depth and the richness of life? And so, the reason I can notice that now was because for the first 27 years of my life, I didn't feel that way. It was very angsty and very intense and very move and try and fix and manipulate and force my will into the world and trying to get everything to be a certain way and trying, I need to get this person to like me and make this much money and get this car. And then it's like, if I can rearrange life and get everything to be a certain way, then I can be okay. It's like, I'm, I, I just need everything to be a certain way, then I can relax. And so it's like this angsty pull and like feeling like pressure, like time is running out. Like I need to hurry and go and move and do this. And it was just really intense, really heavy, really overwhelming energy. And I, and I went at that rate for so long in my 20s trying to build this, you know, this empire. And it was exhausting. And so I felt the opposite of that. And so for me now, it's really easy to tell where I catch myself feeling angsty, feeling intense. It's like, okay, I'm out of alignment. You know, what practices do I need to use to get back in touch? Do I need to go back and get into yoga? Do I need to change my diet? Do I need to get back into my meditation practice and learning to trust the flow? And really, you know, the biggest secret in this, I think, and I'm, I'm sure you have a similar practice, but it's learning to build and create a relationship with your intuition, Right. And so I don't care if you call it God. I don't care if you call it a gut feeling. It doesn't matter. If you think this is this whole experience is just an incredible cause and effect of scientific forces, or you believe that there was a God who you know waved a magic wand and put it all together, it doesn't matter, right? But it, it's can you tap into that inner knowing, that gut feeling for the science people, or that that guide from God for you know more spiritual people? It doesn't matter, but. Building a relationship with your inner knowing and trusting that is the, one of the most incredible gifts we all have as human beings. Because on one level, one of those words will resonate with you. And learning to trust your gut, learning to trust your intuition, and when you follow it and then you reap the rewards for doing it, gives you a confidence and a surety that, that, it is, that it's guiding you. Could you take us back to a moment, let's say in the last two years when you felt out of alignment and then like exactly what you did to get yourself back into that place? Yeah. So, um, the beginning of 20, no, I would say spring of 2020 was really, really intense for me. Right. I think it was intense for the whole world and it was peak pandemic. It was peak George Floyd. It was the election was warming up. Right. And there was, there was a lot of contention and I had just recently lost a dear friend of mine, Johnny, to suicide. And I was feeling the angstiness of this. And I was really, you know, in my business trying to get out into the world to, to help people. And by moving out into the world, I lapsed on my own personal practices. Right? I was so out into the world and trying to fix it. And I had, you know, I had strong opinions about COVID and social and I got 
pulled into the world. I got pulled into the narrative that the media is pressing and there's this big battle and it's, you know, social media is so intense, especially right now. Like it's just like this really intense, high strung ball and you get pulled into it. And I got pulled into it and I was having the political debates and I was having the COVID debates and I was having, you know, the mental health debates. And I'm like, it's funny because I'm preaching mental health, but I was so caught up in this world and I was really out of alignment. I felt this constant angstiness and I felt uh, my, I had brain fog and I felt that I was, I was really frustrated at times and I would snap and I'd get frustrated and, I'm, and I caught myself. I'm like, oh, like I'm out of alignment. And so what do I need to do to get back in alignment? I'm like, okay, what's causing me to get angsty? So I got on my social media and I blocked all news outlets. I unfollowed all the celebrities. I unfollowed everything. And then I got back into like, okay, I need to eat, you know, more healthy. I need to stay more hydrated. I need to get back into a yoga practice and start meditating. And I need to start spending more time out in nature and journaling, you know? So these are the habits that really help me feel grounded. And by doing so, I, you know, as I was able to take a step back, I realized I'm like, Oh, I got caught up in what the media and the world is wanting me to be to participate in. And that's not, you know, that's not in alignment for me. Yeah. It's really interesting. Cause even though you do all these practices, you, you can still get caught up in that moment yeah. of, oh my God, what does so-and-so think? What does the news think? It's, it's something that all of us have had to deal with, I feel like. Yeah. So take me to when you're just starting your journey in 2017. Yep. How long after did your twin sister gift you a new earth by Eckhart Tolle? So that was the very beginning of the journey is when my twin sister gifted me that book. And so I remember reading that book and being like, oh, like, and kind of understanding a new perspective. And this was before any of my psychedelic experiences or getting into yoga or meditation. That was kind of the book that kickstarted it. And she gave me a new earth for Christmas in 2016. And I remember she gave it to me and she just said, you're ready. Wow. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like whatever that means. And I remember going through it and really sitting with it. And I'm like, okay, cool. And then I had, you know, my June 10th experience and I had deeper meditation and then I started working with ayahuasca and then I went through the book again and I'm like, oh, like this book has so much depth. Like what happened to Eckhart was so profound about like, I had a moment in ayahuasca and I don't think I shared too much of it in my book, but I had this moment in ayahuasca where I felt like I was reborn and I had like, I was fully like reset on my night two, my second night of ayahuasca. And I talk about how beautiful the night was. And it gave me a moment of presence where I had no other internal chatter. And no, my mind was completely off. And I was fully engaged in the present moment and the depth and the beauty and the love of that moment was so incredibly overwhelming and blissful and euphoric that I've never been the same. Another moment where I've never been the same. And then afterwards, ever having that experience, going through Eckhart Tolle's book, being like the present moment, I'm like, holy shit, that dude got to a whole nother level on his own. I'm like, I understand what he's trying to say now. And it took a year of sitting with it and having different experiences to understand the beauty and the depth of the present moment. And then and since that, you know, it's, it's really hard. Obviously I'm human. I still have thoughts. I'm trying to grow a business and, you know, in my dating life and travel and, you know, I've got, I have that stuff, but go, remembering that moment of being present is a guide for me and a reminder to, to, uh, to reach that state and uh, to sought after that state. 
Yeah, I remember the book How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend this book. He said that someone remembering a psychedelic experience is equivalent to them being there according to studies mm-hmm. when they hook up the brain to the MRI. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. So there's actual yeah. truth to what you're saying, at least scientifically. So Absolutely. So I'm curious, what did your sister, what attributes or traits did she notice within you that said to her, you're ready for this book? Well, it's interesting because she went through a really transformative life change working with psychedelics as well a couple of years before me. And she was kind of always a little angsty and forgetful and kind of like almost like rushing, like life was really running her. Like life was in charge and it was running her and she was always like trying to catch up and angsty and forgetful and like she was always kind of in a, like a little bit of a, a negative mood. And then, you know, and that's just kind of how she was. And then in, in the early 2010s, I noticed a dramatic shift in her. She was calm. She was present. She changed her diet. Her eyes just seemed a little bit more brighter. Uh, she had a little bit more confidence and she started her own business that like went from zero to a hundred real quick, like out of, I'm like, my twin sister just started a multi-million dollar business. Like what? Like it didn't make any sense. I'm like, what happened? Like what changed so much? And so later in our conversations, she opened up, she's like, Hey, I started working with plant medicine and it completely changed my life. And so she was literally leaving these little breadcrumbs for me. So when it was my turn to come into plant medicine, it felt very safe because my twin sister, I had seen the changes in her and so it felt, it, it, I mean, it created credibility in the space. And so after my experiences, you know, it was very similar. She's like, oh, you don't seem as uptight anymore. You're not trying to fix everything, right? I was a fixer. It's like, okay, I need to fix this. I need to fix this. I need to make more money and grow my team and like get a nicer car. And I need to go in and just try and manipulate and force everything to be a certain way. And then I just learned to surrender and let go. And I just opened up a whole new avenue for my life. How does one know when they're ready to start exploring plant medicines? Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, So in my journey, I experienced a lot of the woo-woo. So I I had that first experience on June 10th, and I'm like, shit, if that can happen, uh, who am I to say what's true and what's not true? Like everything's up for interpretation now. Like almost everything's free game. So I started working with psychics and I did Reiki and tarot cards and intuitive life readers and spiritual gurus and float tanks and yoga and Tantra and like all the weird stuff. And I'm like, any of this could be game. And so um, I think there's a lot of bullshit in the woo woo space. Like there's a lot of like weird stuff that it just doesn't resonate. And I think is garbage. But one thing that I do believe that is woo woo, if you want to use that word is you will know when you are ready to work with the medicine, to work with the plant medicine. And if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. And so if I ask you like, hey, do you want to do ayahuasca? And you're not like, hell yes, you shouldn't work with it. Because it is really intense and there are dangers that come with it. And there should be should be warning signs with that as well. But looking back on my journey, I can easily say confidently, I'm like, oh, ayahuasca came and got me. Like it literally was like, hey, it's your turn. And it gave me the June 10th experience and put it right in front of my face. Like my entry to working in these, these ceremonies and these circles with highly trained professionals was so easy. And like the right person would just show up and connect me with the right person. And I didn't even feel like I was trying. And it, to me, that was like the medicine was pulling me in to come and get me. So to answer Wait. your question, you'll know when you're ready. 
<laughs> yeah, but you can also take it too far, right? Like um, the totally. interaction you have with Tim Ferriss. Yeah. Yep. So um, Tim and I got connected at a party, uh, a New Year's party. We were at the same party and we were actually sitting right by each other at the dinner table and we got to spend an evening together in conversation. And when I found out Tim was like going to be my partner in this experience, it was like an interactive dinner party. I was really excited and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I had just gotten into the psychedelic scene and I felt like, you know, in my Utah community, no one, everyone thought I was weird and like no one resonated with me and no one got me and I didn't feel seen or heard. And it was actually kind of a scary time. And then it was like, oh, now I get to go sit next to Tim Ferriss, who's a big advocate for this and, you know, is a leader in this. And I'm like this, he'll get it. He'll totally get it. And we'll be buddies and he'll give me a high five and we'll be friends for life after this experience. And I was really excited to share my experiences with him. Because it was like, oh, someone will finally understand me. And so we get to this party. You know, it's it's a uh, costume party thing. So we're kind of dressed all funny weird. And we're sharing meals next to each other. And um, I'm like, you'll never believe what happened. So I started telling my stories. And he was just giving me like this really stern look. And I remember being like, wait, what? And he just didn't receive. He didn't have the same fervency as I did. And it wasn't well received. It was almost like there was these walls up of like protection and I remember being like really turned off by it. And I remember like, that was so weird. And then the next day there was a follow-up brunch for everyone at this party. And so I showed up at this brunch and he kind of, you know, pulls me aside and he's like, Hey, you know, I'm glad you're looking at these compounds. They're really powerful. But just so you're aware, like I've had people get into this space, friends of mine who have broken and have never come back. Like it's, 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 they've gone too far. They've gone too deep and it's literally messed up their brains. So it's like, he's almost like proceed with caution. And I remember thinking like, I've done the hard ayahuasca experience. I've done it. Like, and I'm, I'm a strong, I had like this pride that like, I'm a strong tripper. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I get, I get what you're saying, but like, I, I I'm stronger than that. And then, so it kind of like we left, it was kind of like a weird thing we left on. And then I think it was like a month later, not that much longer, I felt the call to do a psilocybin experience, you know, four grams of mushrooms. And I'm like, I've done this before. I know what's going on. And I take this four gram mushroom trip and it was brutal. It was the most, one of the most horrific experiences of my life. I had a full psychotic break in the experience. I forgot who I was and where I am and felt like I was spinning out of control and my mind was, you know, melting and I couldn't form thoughts. And it was a really, really terrifying experience. And luckily I had uh, safety measures in place. I was able to get people over to my house to help me calm me down and get me centered. But I remember in that experience, like echoing really deep in my soul, I could hear Tim's voice saying, you know, people broke, friends of mine broke and never come back. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to be in a psych ward the rest of my life. I've gone crazy. And since that experience, I've never looked at psychedelics the same. I have such a more deeper reverence for them. Um, I understand their true power. And really since that experience, I'm, I, I rarely trip anymore. I rarely work with the medicine. I've done a lot of the heavy lifting. I still do occasionally, but it's, it's, I'm way more serious about set and setting and intention and dosage and all the safety precautions because I've had the experience where it, it can go south and it's a really, really scary, terrifying thing. So, you know, you have to be open and know that that is a potential when working with these compounds. Yeah, I appreciate the the uprightness and the forthrightness on yeah. that. I mean, it's it's very yeah. easy to to put away the negative experiences, and you've been able yeah. to so well, from my perspective, 
put forth your negative experiences. And I think that is a result of becoming more in touch with yourself and and mm. and becoming calmer internally is like you're much less likely to try to hide behind yeah. something because you already have looked at yourself. Is that yeah. true from your perspective? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, 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 in my book, I talk about, you know, the death of my father and I talk about being sexually abused when I was six. And I talk about the shame and guilt I have of being the fat kid. Right. And I talk about the shame and guilt of, of money issues of, of blowing, you know, a million dollars in my twenties. And I think the reason I can so openly talk about these topics that are shameful for a lot of people is because I've done the work around them. Like I've really healed. I've worked. It's not just, I went into a psychedelic experience. I went into a psychedelic experience and then I hired three therapists and then I, you know, met with them on a weekly basis and did the healing and did the work and did and went through the difficult dark times. And the intention of the book is to hopefully inspire people where it's like, Hey, we all have these trauma, traumatic experiences. Um, and that's okay. And if you actually go and do the work and do the healing, there's a really beautiful life on the other side. And I'm not saying I'm fully healed. There's always going to be something for me to work on, but I've done like the heavy lifting, like the big pieces, you know, the sexual abuse, the death of my father, the loss of a relationship, the leaving the religion, like the blowing the money, the body shame, like these really big blockages. I've removed the big ones and it's, it, I moved into a layer of life that I didn't know was possible. And the analogy I use is pretend that your life, like on a, on a happiness scale, there's a one to 10. And you're in the middle and you only get to a six and you keep, you kind of float between a four and a six and a four and a six. And if you sit there for long enough, you think six is a 10. And so you're, you're like, every time you get a six, like, Oh yeah, I'm really happy. Uh, Cool. Six out of 10. Amazing. But you don't know it's a six. You think it's a 10. And then you go and remove these blockages and you do the healing. And then you start flirting with a seven and eight and a nine. And you're like, Holy shit, this is what it feels like to be alive wow, life can be so beautiful and deep and enriching and exciting and full of joy and enthusiasm. And it's like a lot of people don't even know those states exist because they've never experienced them before. And so in talking about my vulnerability and talking about these experiences, it's like, hey, once you do the work and side note, no one can do the work for you. You have to do it yourself. I I think the phrase I use is no one can do the push-ups for you. Once you do the work, you can also then pierce into these levels of, of depth of happiness and joy that are waiting for everyone. And so it, the book is, is hopefully trying to encourage others to do the same on their own journey. Yeah, I like to think about it as if you were wearing a backpack and you take books out of the backpack with each thing you identify from your past. So take me through exactly what doing the work actually is because I know what that means. You know what that means. But for mm-hmm. someone who's just listening to this, like do the work. Okay. What, what does that mean for me for someone who might not understand what that means internally? Yep. So there's a lot of different ways, right? And it's, that's a really big complex thing. And I think where to start is I believe in my experience, at least in a lot of the conversations I have in the formative years, right? This is like six to 16 almost without fail, every person had a traumatic experience and the trauma varies, right? And so some people had really intense traumatic experiences. I was sexually molested, right? And others were, may not seem as intense, but maybe they were teased or something as a kid. 
both hold you know similar weight and magnitude. But given those experiences, after that experience happens, we then subconsciously tell ourselves that we're not good enough, we're unlovable, and that something is wrong with us. And then we believe that lie, and then we spend the rest of our lives trying to prove it false, right? And so it's like, okay, what is the work? It's like, it's pinpointing the story that you're telling yourself of why you're not good enough. And did that happen when you were in, for me, it happened in second grade when a cool sixth grader called me the fat kid and started teasing me. And I then internalized that and said, oh my gosh, right? Something is wrong with me. I don't belong. I now have to go prove myself of why I should belong. And I've had a client who got, she was a really great reader in second grade and the, a girl, a popular girl teased her and called her a nerd. And so she then tried to play small. She's like, oh my gosh, if I share my talents with the world, I'm going to get made fun of. I'm not good enough. I don't belong. I don't fit in. And so I play small. Right. And so that was another example. And so, you know, how do you do the work? The first thing I want to do is you want to pinpoint the story you're telling yourself. So it might be, I'm fat, I'm skinny, I'm dumb, I'm not smart, I'm too smart, I'm a nerd, right? I'm incapable, my eyes are too close together, I've got weird hair, I've got a weird birthmark on my face, so I'm unlovable. Because, But every story goes back to the core emotional wound and phrasing of, I'm not enough. And so whatever you think you're not enough in, start there. And learning to heal that story and removing that and telling yourself that's not true and and leaning into and and changing the thought patterns connected to that is a really good place to start to do the work. Why do you think we cling to the narrative that we're not enough in these respects? And what can we do as a society to start making us feel from six to 16 more lovable and enough? Yeah, I think no matter how hard we try as parents and as friends, we're not going to be able to save our kids from having a traumatic experience where they feel like they're not enough. Like it's going to happen. Like there's your kids are going to kids are going to get messed up. Like it's just, it doesn't matter how hard you try and how to, but it's going to happen. So I think it starts with radical, you know, because some, sometimes you talk about self love and people think like, Oh, you're full of yourself or you're, you know, you have an ego. And I think a different word that might resonate more is radical self acceptance. Where it's like, I accept me for exactly who I am, given my circumstances. I know I'm not perfect. I know I have mistakes, but I accept where I'm at and I'm okay with where I am. And, you know, my favorite definition of contentment is radically accepting who I am today while being optimistic of a better future. Right. I said this I'm learned- two days ago. Yeah. <laughs> like word really? for word. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing, right? I love it. And it's con- being content with where I am and knowing that I have, I'm human, I have flaws, I have damages, but learning to accept that and learning to love this version of me. I'm only going to be a 32 year old, first time number one bestseller once. And that's where I'm at in my life right now. And how can I learn to love and accept that while still having flaws that I'm working on? Yeah. So one of the ways you did that was writing a letter to ninth grade Doug. Mm-hmm. I love this yep. practice. How did you come across it? And and how would you recommend one go about doing it? Yeah, so you, I talk about the stories and, and the I pinpoint the version of me that was in the most pain, right? Who? So the story I told myself was, I'm the fat kid, therefore I'm not enough. 
And I thought, I'm like, okay, what version of me believes that the most, is suffering the most from that? Is it sixth grade, Doug? Is it second grade? Or, you know, was it 13, 12? And I'm like, oh, it was when I was in ninth grade. It was 15-year-old Doug. He really felt that the most because that's when girls start to get into the picture. And I'd have a crush on a girl. And then she, obviously she wouldn't like me. And I thought it was because I was fat, right? And so ninth grade Doug was feeling that I'm not enough the most. So to heal that story, I'm like, I'm going to write a letter to ninth grade Doug because I'm still feeling it, right, as the fat kid. But who needs it the most? Ninth grade Doug still exists and he needs the love. And this sounds corny and I get it, but like I wrote a letter to Doug as if I was talking to him, ninth grade Doug, and I would affirm him. And I'm like, hey, I get it. Like junior high is tough and girls get in the picture and none of the girls, all the girls you have crushes on, none of them like you back. And you, you're scared to take your shirt off in gym class. And like you are enough, you are loved. If you knew what your future hold, your future would hold. You know, you would never waste a moment being anxious or insecure again. And really sending the love to that version of you from a heartfelt message, that's that's a really good starting point too to start your healing journey as well. And so do you think the reason why ninth grade Doug started playing football was and started to take football so seriously was because you felt inadequate? And then take us through your junior year, high school football. And what yeah. that experience was like as you got recruited, because I was right there when you were writing it. I was right mm. there with you. I was like, yeah. go, Doug, you got this. Yeah, that whole thing was really weird. So what happened actually was in ninth grade, and I didn't talk about this in the book, but I actually quit football. So growing up wow. from when I was eight into junior high, my dad was the head coach of the Little League football team. Mm. So everyone called him coach. He was well, you know, well-respected. By the time I got into high school, you know, I started getting a little bit more popular, wanted to be with my cool friends. And I hated football practice. And I wanted to hang out with my friends more. So I actually quit. I'm like, I'm going to quit football. I'm going to hang out with my friends more. And my dad sat me down. And he's like, hey, like, you're going to regret this. Like, I promise you, you're going to regret this. You should you know, give it a shot. And so he convinced me to go back into football. And I'm so grateful he did. And I go through, you know, my sophomore year of high school. And I didn't really want to be there. I was just doing it kind of like, you know, so I did, I wasn't fully engaged in it. Right. But I, the high school I went to, we were really, really good. Like we were nationally ranked. We had, you know, five-star recruits, you know, had, I remember, I remember seeing for, for the football fans around, this is when Pete Carroll was the head coach at USC. I remember my sophomore year walking through the halls of my high school and seeing Pete Carroll in my high school recruiting our star running back. And so it was like, I was, it was a really, really well good, really, really, really good school. And I didn't feel like I quite belonged. Like I was like, I'm not good enough to be on this team, you know, but I'm, I'll put on the uniform and play in the sophomore games. And, you know, but I wasn't, you know, by any means good. And so I remember my junior comes on and this is when it was like all, we had just lost in the state championship and like double overtime my sophomore year, my junior year is like all of our starters were coming back. And I remember feeling like I want to fit in. I want to be cool. I liked, you know, wearing my letterman's jacket and being part of the team, but I wasn't getting any playing time whatsoever. And I was really just going through the motions. And then I remember thinking halfway through my junior year, um, I'm not playing any varsity at this point. Um, I remember thinking like, I wonder what would happen if I just fully went for it. Like if I just went all out, like tried as hard as I possibly could, I wonder what would happen. So I remember I would I was seeing like all of these players 
get recruited by LSU and Oklahoma State and Florida and Alabama and like USC and Texas. And so, and I would see the buzz in the school and I remember wanting to fit in. I'm like, oh, I wish I was getting recruited. You know, like I want to be like, I want that. I want my name in the paper. Like I want to be on the front page. And I'm like, okay, like I'm going to see what happens if I just totally go for it. So halfway through my junior year, I took weightlifting more seriously. I took practice more seriously. And I actually like got into, I didn't realize it at the time, but I got into flow state, like they talk about ceiling fire. And I got really, really good. And I started having way more fun. And I was just fully going for it. And I still wasn't going to be a starter, but I was just, I remember thinking like, oh, when I try really, really hard, practice goes by faster. And then practice can be over and I can be done with it. Cause I just, I hated practice, you know? And I'm like, if I just go for it full out, like it went by faster in my head. And so I just went for it. And then all of a sudden we get to, um, we get to playoffs and it's like, we're for sure favored to win state. Like we have all the guys. I'm like, okay, cool playoffs. And then literally in one weekend, I was third on the depth chart. The kid in front of me blows out his knee. The other kid in front of me like twists his ankle or something like that. And then the starter is at a dance and breaks his leg at like a bounce house thing. So I literally went from like third bench to now I'm starting in the playoffs in one weekend. And I was like, oh shit, I don't know if I'm ready for this moment. Like I was nervous. I was scared. I remember one of the star players' dad called me the night before a varsity game and he was like hey just want you to know we've got your we, we we support you and i could just hear this undertone i'm like you're scared i'm gonna screw up like you're 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 really nervous i'm gonna blow this and so anyways show up for the game and for whatever reason i just play lights out like incredible like i don't even remember the games i just remember being in this flow state and like i performed the best on the offensive line like i graded higher than the guys are being recruited and after that experience, um, I had pretty good grades in high school. My high school coach was like, hey, like, you might be able to play college football. Like, if you play like this, you can play college football. And I'm like, what? Like, two weeks ago, I was third string. And now I just, I had, I had three really good games in the playoffs that were all insane. And now I'm being recruited. I'm like, what is going on? And I kind of just stayed in the flow state. And, that, and then I, once that started happening, I'm like, oh, I need to take this more serious. I need to take this more serious. And so I stepped into a leadership role in my football team. So I got honored. A whole bunch of our seniors graduated that year and like all of our star players. And then I got voted to be a captain of the football team. And I'm like, how am I captain of the football team? Three weeks ago, I was like a scrub on the bench and now I'm captain? Like what? And I started to learn these leadership roles and I started to take responsibility and I took everything more serious. And, you know, for college recruiting, I was talking, I wasn't going to good enough to play like really good d1 but i had good grades so i'm talking to yale i'm talking to dartmouth i'm talking to cornell i'm talking to harvard about playing college football so now i'm being recruited and that feels really good and i kind of manifested that it was amazing and then you know i take the whole off season i take weightlifting really seriously and i create leadership council and it's like i'm i, I literally transformed myself because of this experience and leading up to the summer now about a year later leading up to into my senior year um and what's interesting too is i got really good at basketball too and I remember I went down to a tournament in Las Vegas for a high school and I scored like 50 points in like this tournament game in this Las Vegas Nike combine game. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, and then I remember one of my coaches like, Hey, you might be able to play college basketball. And I'm like, what, like, <laughs> what is happening? Like, it was this really weird thing. Um, and then all of a sudden, like summer, I remember I started losing weight and I feeling really jittery and like really sweaty 
and thumb, something was happening. And I wasn't sure what was going on. And then my first day of two days in practice, I actually fainted at practice and they took me to the hospital and the doctor was like, Hey, we think you have a hole in your heart. And I'm like, what? And, um, they ran another test and then it turns out I had Graves disease, which is like incredibly rare for someone my age and, and, and my demographic. And I lost like 40 pounds in a month. I lost all my strength. I lost all my speed and I had to miss like the first three games of the year um, because I was sick. But it was interesting because I got to play in the last three games of the year, my junior year. So like compensated and then this newspaper wanted to do an article on me. And so the, this newspaper guy came and he was interviewing me a ton. And I thought it would be like in the back page, like a little column. And he's like, hey, your article comes out tomorrow. Newspaper comes. I open up the sports section. It's fr- like my picture's this big on the front page. And I'm like, what? Like I'm front page on the newspaper talking about recruiting, talking about – and I'm like, how did I get here? Like this is insane. Um, and then my rest of my senior year was actually pretty, pretty, not very good. I was kind of like, went back to like my normal self and I lost all of my college interest. Um, ended up, and I had one final offer that was like this D three liberal arts school. And I'm like, it's just not in the cards for me. So I ended up turning it down. And I look back at that moment and I'm like, that was divine universal intervention. And I was able to, you know, get recruited and I was able to talk to colleges and I was able to get my face in the newspaper but it wasn't at all the way i planned it and that was such a good lesson to me now where it's like oh the universe or god or whatever will take us on these routes it's not going to look like what we think but we can still manifest quote unquote whatever that means to you a life we want to live and so looking back at it, it's like oh my gosh i was actually really being protected because if i would have gone on and had a great year and gone to a college like my entire life would be completely different. And I don't think I would be doing your podcast right now. That's for sure. (laughs) Dude, it's so crazy because when you think about an athlete losing their powers all of a sudden, it's like usually they have a a sustained run where they're building up their identity as this person. But you go from having the identity of a scrub uh, high school football player to being a star in a second to back to you can't play because you're ill. Back to Scrub. Yeah. It's such, such such a crazy story and so small. It's like a movie in and of itself. And then you take your, the rest of your life. Dude, your life is like a movie. Do you ever stop yeah. and think about that? And I think all of our lives are a movie in some respect. If you think about the stories, if you think about how you played certain situations. And so I guess my advice, my question is, what advice would you give for someone who feels like their life isn't a movie, but hears that story and is like, man, that's pretty crazy. What's happening to my life? Yeah, I think the advice I would give is that life, if you can stop and get out of your own head and slow down, life is actually asking you to participate. Life is asking you to engage with it. And so one lesson I learned, and I share this in my book from a mentor of mine, his name's Dave Ayer. And I remember being like 12 years old and he's really successful, right? Someone I really looked up to. And I remember one time he told me when I was a young kid, he said, always say yes to new experiences. Always say yes to new experiences. He said, pay for them. Always spend money on a new experience. And so I really took that to heart. And so the reason my life has turned into, has felt movie-esque, and I agree with you. There are so many times I'm like, am I living in the Truman Show right now? 
And the reason I got to that level in those, in those depths is because I was saying yes to life. I took the courage. I took the jump. I was standing at the cliff and I jumped. And so I think for those of people that don't feel that way, it's like, where in your life can you say yes more? How can you engage with life more? And what new experiences can you take on? And I think when you start to do that, life will start to unfold in a beautiful, you know, movie-esque way for you. Just got chills, man, because I watched the movie (laughs) Yes Man by Jim Carrey, starring Jim Carrey. Mm. His life transforms when he starts saying yes to things. So. Yeah. Another synchronicity there there for us. There they are. <laughs> a lot there of they are. So you mentioned your dad and mm-hmm. and that relationship and that was a synchronicity in and of itself as well that you got mm-hmm. to spend the last year of his life together. And so I'd love to know you could explain that story and also what do you guys talk about? What do you learn in that final year? What what types of things were you discussing on the day to day basis and, and how did that shape you? Yeah. Um, so kind of circling back to the beginning of our conversation, I went on my service mission, my LDS Mormon mission to New Zealand, and it's a two year commitment. Um, before I left, I had a girlfriend and there's a standard of living you're supposed to live by. And that is, you know, no sex, no beer, no masturbation and like really pure way of living. And so I had like said my goodbyes to everyone. I had did the farewell party. I like had my ticket book. I wasn't doing a semester of college and it was like the night before I was supposed to leave. So I went to go say goodbye to my girlfriend and, um, we broke the rules. We didn't have sex, but like we got more handsy and intimate than we were supposed to like any other 18 year old couple. Right. I mean, just really normal, basic stuff, like nothing crazy. Um, and I knew I had like broken the rule, but I'm like, it wasn't bad enough. Like, it's not like we had sex. So it's like, I can, I'm okay with this piece, you know? And so I went on my mission and nine months into my mission, I started to feel really guilty about this. Right. And I feel the shame. I'm like, maybe I need to clean this piece up a little bit. So I eventually told my mission leader at the time thinking no way in hell I'm going to get sent home for it. Like it's going to be like a slap on the wrist. And so I confess. And then they actually send me home. Like I got kicked off of my mission early nine months into my mission. I'm like, they're sending me home for this? Like, this is silly. Like, what? doesn't make any sense. And so that was kind of like a devastating blow for me because that was kind of like the first time in my life I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. But anyways, I get home and I'm kind of like navigating. I'm like trying to like earn the respect back to go finish my mission. And just, you know, sh- shortly after, my dad gets diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, which is a devastating blow. I was so close to my dad. So, I mean, he was the coach of all of my sports teams from football to little league in the community. We were really, we had a really close bond. Um, once that happened, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm not going to go finish my mission, which is a blessing though, too, because I was able to be home and spend his last good year with him. I would have been on my mission uh, with, without that. And so what I really learned in those last years is that life really is beautiful for the simple moments. Do you have beautiful relationships, people you care about, friends who care about you and family, right? I think that the the beauty of our lives is directly correlated to the depth of our relationships. Um, 
And I learned that from my dad. He had, he had so many people that loved him and looked up to him and so many amazing close friends who would come by and visit and share lunches with him and go on walks with him. And I, I, could, I know he died in peace because he was at ease and content with his family and with his friends. And that was really powerful to me. And it wasn't, he didn't care about, I mean, he, he did well financially. He wasn't crazy, but he wasn't like, you know, rubbing his Jaguar down with a waxing rag before he died. You know, he didn't care about that. It was, it was how many people could come through our front door and how many special moments he could share with them. That really sat with me. It's like, oh yeah, like it really, at the, at the end of the day, it comes down to the quality and depth of our relationships with our loved ones. So was there a significant conversation that you could share or significant questions you asked? I think what he said is so profound of the depth of our relationships determines the quality and beauty of our life. That is so, so true. And I'd love to like, pry at that a little more. What, what can we say? What types of questions can we ask to imagine that this is our last year with our loved ones? Because we don't know what it's like. So I'd love to go deeper on that if possible. Yeah, I think one thing that I learned a lot from my dad is my dad lived a very incredible life of integrity. Um, he always did the right thing and always cheered on kind of the under underdog and would help where he could. And so he very much got his ego out of the way. It wasn't about him, right? It was about how can I share love in this moment? And I think asking, talking to him, he got a lot of enjoyment and fulfillment from being able to be a, a support for those in need. And so he, he looked to ways to serve others. And that's something that really stood out to me. And, you know, going deeper, you know, the really the only, it's a little bit off the topic a little bit, but I remember the only question. So he didn't grow, I, he wasn't Mormon. So my mom was Mormon and he wasn't. Um, and I remember asking him like, Hey, what do you think is going to happen when you die? Because in the Mormon world, that's like, that's already laid out for you. Like you, you're told what's going to happen. And I just remember thinking of saying him, he's like, I hope there's something more. Um, and this was early on in his cancer. And as the cancer went deeper, um, and he got closer to death and the hospice care came in, his conversation started to change. And it was really cool to see in him where the conversation, I remember one point he said, I'm really excited to see my parents again on the other side. So it went from, I hope there's a God to as he, as he started to deteriorate over the months and he got closer to death, it seemed like he, his intuitive soul came out and he believed there was going to be an afterlife, which was really cool because he was very much like a science atheist guy. And to see that change in him as death knocked on his door was really, really beautiful. I got chills, man. That is yeah. incredible. Oh, my God. So one thing I love that you did when you came home from that mission is you said to the community, listen, this is the mistake I made. And I thought yeah. that was such a powerful mm. thing that you did. It's very easy to... Like we were talking about before, one of your strengths, I believe, is your ability to be open with your flaws or your mistakes. And that is such a powerful trait. So why did you decide to just say to the whole community, this is who I am? This is the mistakes I made. 
So I had personally seen in my experience. So if you get sent home from your mission, that's a very shameful, guilty experience for a lot of for a lot of young adult men. And I had seen a lot of gossip and a lot of people kind of like hiding out in their parents' basements and they're too scared to go out in public because what are the neighbors going to think? And it just felt really heavy and gross. And I didn't want people gossiping around it. And I learned from my dad that it was the best way to avoid criticism is to accept it. So if someone starts criticizing me and I just accept it, there's nowhere else for the conversation to go. It's just kind of just stops and it's tracks. And so I remember sitting on that in high school and then I get home from my mission and I remember thinking like, I don't want people gossiping about me. So if I know if I can go up and own it and they hear it from me and I accept the criticism, it'll, it's over. It, the buck stops with me, it stops here. And so in the LDS faith, every Sunday, they have what's called fast Sunday, which is basically like an open mic uh, meeting where anyone who feels inspired to share can go up and speak. And so I get home like two days later, it's an open mic night, open mic meeting. And I go right up to the pulpit and I'm like, Hey, I just want everyone to hear from me. I'm home early from my mission. I made some mistakes. I'm working on it. If you have any other questions, please don't hesitate to come find me. I'm, I'm open to willing to talk about it. And that there was, that was it. It was over. Like there was no gossip. There was no talking. They had heard it from me. And, uh, it was a really, really valuable lesson that I learned that I still hold to this day. And I just remember it was, even though that was scary, I didn't want to get caught up in the weeds of the gossip and whatnot. And I had seen how it'd been a lot of shameful and actually really empowered me to continue to show up and continue to show up in my community because there was, there wasn't anything to hide from. One of the things I noticed about you is you're a very powerful storyteller. You're very mm. good at, at taking a story and bringing it to life in a way that is understandable to the listener or to the reader. What makes for a good storyteller? That's a really good question because I have never thought as myself as a good storyteller. Um, I really haven't. And I think one of my gifts that maybe I'm not fully aware of and fully understand the depth and capacity of it is able to explain connect dots and situations and undertake the take the takeaway from it and the learning experience of it. And then being able to articulate it in a way that is approachable and makes sense for others. Um, and I'm not sure where that comes from. I really don't. I think it might just be one of my, my gifts, but I think, um, in regards to storytelling is we love being able to relate with others and especially emotionally right? We were very emotional creatures. And so if I can explain something to you that triggers an emotion within you, it's going to create a bond of trust and connection with me. And we learn through emotion as well. And so to get my point across, I'm trying to trigger an emotion within you that you can relate to so you can understand the depth of the lesson as well. And so those are just kind of some things I keep in mind when trying to explain my stories. How can I emotionally connect to my reader or my listener? How much did your experience doing door-to-door sales impact your ability to tell stories and connect with others? Probably a lot, right? And um, I'll never forget, and like I said, going back to like a natural gift piece was I eventually got um, promoted to be the company sales trainer at Vivint Smart Home, which is probably the largest door-to-door 
sales company in the world. They're a multi-billion dollar company. And I was the sales trainer. Like, so if you signed on to be a salesman, you're watching my videos um, that I would write. And I remember I did a sales training where it was like an in-home walkthrough demo in like a, a potential customer's home. And I said, I, I, in that training, I'm like, hey, as you walk into uh, the room, you know, take a moment to pause and just read the situation, kind of just read the energy of the room. And I would get a lot of people after they watched that would message me and read me and message me and be like, hey, what do you mean by read the room? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you just read the room. You just kind of like tap into the energy of the room. And like, what does that mean? And I just like didn't get it. And it wasn't until later, especially working with psychedelics and kind of seeing some of my gifts, it was like, oh, I have a natural ability of being able to read the energy and kind of getting in tune. And so the way I share that back with others is we're so caught up in our heads of how we think it needs to be. And if we can kind of just take a moment to breathe and relax and kind of like open up, like we know if our hearts opened or closed, right? If you can open up your heart, you can kind of intuitively tap into how the energy of the room is going. And so being able to be inside customers' homes for 10 years of strangers of knocking on their doors, I think it was a skill that I built up, you know, subconsciously without consciously knowing I was doing that, which has really, really served me later on um, and so for anyone listening, listening around, listening as well, you know, try and read a room when you go in a little bit deeper, take an extra second to pause and kind of open up your heart and kind of feel because, you know, going back to a part of our earlier conversation, I think the greatest gift we all have as humans is our intuition, like our internal gut feeling, our internal compass. And if you give your internal intuition a moment to act and to read an experience, you'll get more intuitive insights on how to navigate the upcoming conversation or the upcoming, you know, meeting or what's going on. And do you think that is part of the reason why you had a different experience with MDMA the first time because you had a greater intuitive sense or what do you think caused the, yeah. the difference of perspective of you taking the same drug someone else did and having a completely different experience? Yeah, it's, 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 that's a really interesting question because I've thought about that a lot too. It's like, why did I have that really, really intense experience? And I've done MDMA since and I've had very normal, typical experiences. And I've never even been close to that experience since. Wow. And um, I asked myself, I'm like, why did that happen? And, you know, it, it is the most unexplainable thing that's ever happened in my life. But the way I try and make sense of it today is that I was so off course I was so asleep at the wheel. I was so like toxic, masculine, douchey sales, bro. And I probably still have a little of those tendencies today, right? Um, um, I needed something to absolutely shock and awe me and flip me up so incredibly and blow me out for me to continue the path of self-healing. Because I think if I would have had a normal experience that night, it wouldn't have caused me to want to search deeper and I would have never led me to ayahuasca or led me, led me to other people. I wouldn't have kept exploring, I don't think. And so I needed that initial explosion to be so dramatic to keep me engaged down the path. So that's how I, that's how I make sense of it today. But the reality is I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's just one of those stories where it's so crazy yeah. and you're like, how is that possible? You know, you yeah. mentioned since tw- 2017, you have tried so many different things. And I'm curious how you differentiate between what's woo-woo and not serving you 
It doesn't have to be the same thing or just something you want to do more of, like you've said with yoga and meditation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's so many incredible tools out there, right? So many tools. We have this massive tool belt to get back in alignment, to live better, healthier, happier lives. Uh, And what works for me isn't going to work for you. And so for me, I had to like go experience everything, you know, from tarot to psychics to Reiki to yoga to meditation to spiritual gurus to Wim Hof to holotropic breathwork to EMDR to float tanks to biohacking to neurofeedback, you know. So I'd do all of it. And for me, a lot of that stuff didn't really resonate and I could tell. And that, but some of like meditation, like really, really important for me, you know. And it really helps me. But I also have like one of my dearest soul friends who I trust more than anyone who's also in tune, like swears by charging her crystals under the full moon. To me, that does nothing. But I don't resonate with that. But for her, it gets her back in alignment. So whatever you're doing that gets you back into a state of integrity and alignment, I think it's fine. Yeah. And it's just like that intuitive feeling is the reason Mm -hmm. why you proceed with something or don't yeah totally so it's just yeah does, does this does this bring value to my life does it enhance does it deepen my deepen my relationship and connection to source hmm. right if i feel like it creates a deeper connection to source and intuition then i'll continue to do it but i would go see some of these psychics or tarot card readers and they'd give me insight and i'm like this isn't resonating with me at all it's not giving me any insight it's not helping my human experience it's not deepening my connection with source so for me, that wasn't a thing. But for some people, it's like their main go-to. So just be intuitive with it. Whatever gives brings you closer to the divine, I think, is is what you're looking for. One of the moments where you got really in touch with source and in touch with the divine, it seems like, is when you had this insight. And I'm going to quote here again from your book. Before our birth, we all started a place that basically serves as a general's tent where we run through what our whole life will entail, who we're going to meet at what time and what that person is going to mean to us. We make, we make soul contracts with all those people. Sometimes it takes multiple lives to fulfill our contracts. And after everything is precisely orchestrated, we go and play out those experiences on earth. We have no recollection of this prior preparation during our lives here. When I read this, I just felt at ease and at peace. Mm. And how does that insight that I believe you had on ayahuasca help you in your life today? Yeah. So once again, like I said, like I don't, I'm not saying that's true. I'm not saying that's exactly what happens, but that's how I perceived and, and interpreted an experience. Um, and it made sense. It makes sense to me, right? You know, we can't comprehend infinity. Like our human brains don't have the capacity to understand infinite life and infinite time. And so given that we are in a circumstance where our souls may be infinite, it's possible, you know, having these multiple, multiple experiences for the evolution of our soul makes a lot of sense. And so seeing that general's tent idea really brought a sense of ease as well. And believing it, whether it's true or not, I don't think it matters, but believing it keeps me open to synchronicity and also keeps me calm in adversity because it's like, okay, I'm dealing with a trial right now and rather trying to fix it so I don't feel uncomfortable. It's okay, I chose this trial in a way 
for a reason and there must be a lesson behind it. So I approach my problems in a different manner because to me, there's an underlying opportunity for growth and learning behind it. So the way I tackle these difficult situations is completely different because I believe there's a deeper meaning behind it. Yeah, that's such a powerful belief. Whether or not it is true or not, it doesn't matter because it serves you yeah. in this moment. Are there any other beliefs that you hold that you might not know if they're true or not, but you choose to believe them because they make your life better? Yeah, life after death There's one, right? It's totally possible that when we die, the lights go out forever. It's 100% possible that this entire human experience is the result of extraordinary science and that there's no divine intervention. It's possible, right? And believing though, I don't believe that, but I'm open to it. Um, I believe that our souls are eternal and progression and that there, we are playing uh, like uh, an, an infinite game, right? There is no finish line. The progression of our soul never, never finishes. And because I've embodied that belief, it allows me to move through this life at a much more smooth pace because I'm not angstily trying to get to this, not this, this fictional finish line. Like there's no ending point. And so because there is no ending point, it allows me to savor and feel the juice of like the normal everyday experiences because I, I've got them now and that because they're never ending, how can I savor them at a deeper level? And so believing in eternal soul progression gives me the ability to be more present in my everyday activity. Well, I think that is an apropos place to end this conversation, but maybe it will go for infinity as well. Uh, is there any closing thoughts you have for this conversation? I've had an absolute blast and I'm so grateful for your presence here. Yeah, I've had a really good, this is a really great conversation too. You're a phenomenal question asker. So thank you for, for doing the homework and, and being able to engage at a deeper level. Um, I think the overall message, if I could just wrap it up, you know, what I'm trying to share with the world, it's really, it goes back to self-love, Right. Learning to love yourself is the ultimate superpower you can embark on on this human journey because it frees you from the expectations of others and the chains you hold of trying to be a specific someone in the world. And it allows you to, to be yourself. And so, you know, do the work, you know, and, and I, I outline it for you in the book. So if you want to go more, check out the book. It's on Amazon, number one bestseller in the first 24 hours. Holy shit, we're alive. And I also respond to all of my Instagram DMs. So hit me up on Instagram at Doug If you have thoughts or insights or ideas, I love sharing ideas. I'm, and I'm also very open to everything that I have just said could be completely false. Holy shit. We're alive. It's a bestseller on Amazon. You can find the link below Doug underscore Cartwright on Instagram and Twitter as well. I believe. Thank you, Doug, for coming on. We'll put all your stuff below and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Danny. Beautiful people. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. I would love to hear from you on Twitter or Instagram, whatever's easiest for you, about the thoughts that were sparked as a result of that conversation, the synchronicities in your own life. Maybe you thought about the the ways in which you could better accept yourself, 
whatever it may be, I'd love to hear from you on Twitter or Instagram at Hey Danny Miranda about some of that stuff. Until then, like I always, I'm so grateful for you for listening until this point, and I will see you in the next episode. Peace.